Hey, what's going on, everybody? This your boy, Jim Mace, and we have another episode of Beyond the Album Cover, where we get to know what's in the know inside the music industry by those that experienced it and give them their flowers while they're here so they can smell them and be celebrated. Right now with me, I have a man who is no stranger to the music industry. He has risen from intern to VP of Marketing Promotions at Bad Boy and went on to launch his own thing, Power Moves Incorporated, to help you make your power move in whatever it is that you want to do. Ladies and gentlemen, give a big round of applause to the podcast, Mr. Sean Perez. Sean, welcome. Thanks so much for having me. Thanks. I'm excited to be here, um, and I really appreciate all that you do, and um, I love the fact that you are trying to give back to the community in terms of education and really bringing people like myself onto your platform just so that we can tell our story. So thank you so much. Yeah, I appreciate it. The pleasure is all mine because I believe in this space that we're in right now with technology and social media. That's what you can do as a creative is tell your story. It's not like how it was pre-social media and Internet where you had to go through a gatekeeper to tell your story where if you got a phone, a laptop, you could just upload it directly to the world and say, I'm going to do it myself and I don't need nobody to tell it for me. That's right. So we're going to go ahead and get this underway. You grew up in the South Bronx. Now, did your love of hip-hop fall when going to the early part jams and the various hip-hop haunts back in the 80s and early 90s? And when was it for you where you said to yourself, I want to get into the music industry? Well, yes, I did grow up in the South Bronx, South Bronx, born and raised. And, you know, coming up in the South Bronx in the late 70s, early 80s, there was this new art form. It was this new culture being created. So it was very much part of the fabric of who I was. You know, this hip-hop thing, whether it was graffiti or breakdancing or, you know, the actual songs or the DJs, like you said, the jams in the park. It was just who we were at the time. As I was growing up, hip-hop was in its infancy and it was growing up. So I didn't know anything different. You know, back in those days, now people can stream and they can get their music from Spotify, iTunes, all these different streaming platforms. You can turn on the radio and you can hear hip-hop all day long. Back in those days, there was no such thing. There was no hip-hop on the radio. The only way you can consume it was through the underground, going to jams in the park. And at that time, it wasn't even a such thing as mixtapes. So for me, yes, my love of hip-hop came from just growing up as a child of hip-hop. And then as I got older, and we'll get into this a little later in the conversation, but as I got older, I never looked at music as much as I loved it, as much as it was part of, and this is the mistake that so many people make, the thing that they love, they don't look at it as a career. So for me, I just looked at hip-hop and music as something that I love, but not necessarily, you know, I can't make money at it. You know, I wasn't a singer. I wasn't, I mean, excuse me, I wasn't a rapper. I wasn't a DJ or anything like that. So how do I make money doing it? But the seeds were planted during my youth. And when I finally woke up and the light bulb came on, like, look, Sean, you're searching this planet for what your purpose is and what it is you want to do with your life. It's been right with you your whole life. It's hip-hop. And finally, I made the decision to get in the industry. Right. And during those early years of hip-hop, like you stated earlier, it wasn't readily commercially available. The only way you got it was if somebody snuck in a tape recorder like Rerun did and what's happening at the Doobie Brothers concert. Uh-huh. That clip 
and then you sold it on Canal Street or whatever, and then it got passed around. And being in the South or any other region outside of New York, you got stuff super late. So the only way you got it was if you had somebody visiting from up north coming down south, and they would bring the tape down. But the funny thing was we thought it was new, but up north it was out months ago. So that's how I heard a lot of the early 90s, late 80s mixtapes like Kid Capri, Cool Kid, and Ron G. Correct. Yeah, so thinking about the early years, it was the influences and pioneers like the Cool Hurts, Africa Bambadas, Jazzy J, DJ Hollywood, Eddie Chiba, Love Bus, Starsky, Pete DJ Jones, DJ Flowers, Disco Twins that laid the foundation for everybody that came after. But it was revolutionary around the mid-80s once Mr. Magic, may he rest in peace, he had his show first on WHBI. And then later, Frankie Crocker came in, put him on BLS, and then he had Marley Mall along with Fly Tie. And then on Kiss, you had Red Alert, Chuck Chill Out, and then at Columbia University, two guys who loved hip-hop so much got on the station and had a lot of acts that ended up getting signed after their appearance on their show. And that's Bobito and Stretch Armstrong. So what was it like going up? During that time where you had all these shows and you had to keep the tape deck on the ready. Well, that's exactly what it was. You know, back in those days, we're talking about a different technology, right? Everything was tape recorded. So myself, my friends, everybody who I knew, we would be, because again, this is when hip-hop first started coming on the radio. So you couldn't find it. It wasn't like mix shows are today. So you would have pirate radio, like you said, was stretching Bobito. That was considered pirate radio. That it was off a college campus that it was broadcasting from. So these shows would come on at the weirdest times. You might catch a show from two in the morning to four in the morning, and this is me going to school the next day. But I'd have to stay up and in my room have my radio on super low because my mother thought that, you know, me and my brothers were asleep at that time. So if she heard us, she was probably going to come in that room and wear us out. But we would be up like in the middle of the night with hitting that play button and record button at the same time for anybody who's listening who's old enough to remember what it was like to record off the radio. And that's what we would do. We would record for two hours. You know, and then go to school and maybe one of my friends would record a different show and we swap tapes. So I give him my tape, he make a copy, he give me his tape, I make a copy, things like that. And then as, you know, it really started to evolve and you saw people, you know, like the red alerts and they started to get what's called at that time, prime time, you know, Molly Mall, all of those guys having prime time mix shows, which were, they weren't technically prime time. It was probably like 11 o'clock at night compared to being two, three, four in the morning. And it was prime time, you know, being on BLS and KISS in New York City, which are iconic radio stations. The masses started to hear what was going on in the streets. You know, we were able to start to consume hip-hop a little more regularly. But before that, it was you got it wherever you could find it. And it wasn't like it was easy to be found because a lot of these radio shows, they were at off hours on off radio stations. When BLS and KISS finally allowed hip-hop to be played 
It wasn't like it was 24 hours a day. It might be a two-hour mix show, a one-hour mix show. And that's when the masses, regular people, started to be able to hear hip-hop on the radio. Right. And for those of you that don't know, the reason why mix shows were regulated to only weekends or off hours is because in the broadcasting industry, there's a little thing that we like to call day parting where they take certain records or artists that they know wouldn't get played in regular rotation and put it at a time of day where it wouldn't affect the ratings. So that's why if you go back and listen to a lot of urban radio stations in the mid to late 80s, early 90s, you didn't really hear rap during your morning, your midday drives. You maybe will start hearing it a little bit in your afternoon drive, but primarily on weekends because the weekend shows – didn't affect those Arbitron diaries. I remember okay. those days of radio tuning quite well where you had to tune it in exactly just right. This was before digital tuners where you had to make sure that the dial was directly on the station because if it wasn't, you was going to get a lot of static. Do you have any memories of yourself or anybody that was older at that time going to hip-hop spots like the Disco Fever, Dancer Terrier, Roxy, or Latin Quarter? You know, my brothers, my older brothers, they did. Um, They would go to more underground spots like the T-Connection in the Bronx or the Fever in the Bronx. When I got old enough, I'd start going to the Fever up in the Bronx. But, yeah, you just mentioned some really iconic clubs that I totally forgot about. That's a little bit predating me. So, and it's interesting, right? Because my mother is 21 years older than me. But she, because when hip-hop was in its infancy, she was still young, technically. But she didn't get into hip-hop. Hip-hop wasn't her thing, even though she was still young. So, in my house, we had... The Motown era, you know, get up. My mother is a is a freaking clean fanatic, so every weekend was spent cleaning that house top to bottom, stripping it down. So we have the the Michael Jacksons and Stevie Wonders and Marvin and just all of the songs for that day, and also the disco era. But my mother never really went to those hip hop clubs because for her, even though she wasn't that much older than me, the music didn't resonate with her, which is crazy. But myself and my brothers, we were still relatively young. So yes, my brothers were older than me and by the time that they got of age to go to any clubs, whether it was they were eighteen years old or whatever, they were going to local clubs in the Bronx that are still iconic clubs like I just mentioned, Disco Fever and T Connection up on Gun Hill Road. But you know, Danzitarian all the Rocky, all of that, nah, I don't have any memories of people close to me going to those clubs. Right, because I remember listening to Questlove Supreme when they had various guests talk about stories from the Latin Quarter. It sounded like that club was super fierce where you didn't want to go in in your best dress because if you did, you was going to get jacked. Well, you got to remember, right, Quarters is technically still around today. So I've partied at the Quarters a million times. But it was not when it was Latin Quarters, Latin Quarters. And when it was Latin Quarters, Latin Quarters, yeah, you had to go down there and you had to be deep um, because, you know, everybody was going down there dressed to impress. It was hip-hop for real in its heyday at that time. But, you know, when you got a bunch of people down there with gold chains and, you know, at that time the fresh shell toe Adidas and all of the clothes and apparel from that day, you also had to stick up kids out. And they was waiting for you to come out that club a little saucy. So you had to roll down there with a bunch of boys, your, your whole crew, or else you would definitely get robbed on the way out. Yeah, that is definitely a no-no. Don't want to go 
out to a club, look fresh, and like you say, you got stick-up kids waiting for you outside saying, come up off those. Now, for you coming of age during hip-hop infancy and New Jack Swing was coming into formation with what Teddy was doing where he was merging the Motown era R&B, the James Brown samples with the sounds of hip-hop. So what was that like for you when you heard, like, man, we got R&B for us, but it has a hip-hop edge? Well, you know, <laughs> these are great questions, and it's bringing me back to a different time in my life. What Teddy was doing was very, very different, and it was very new. I remember that New Jack Swing sound like it was yesterday because that is my era. That is my teenage years. That is when I started to get old enough to hit the club and really move. Truth be told, that's also, you know, we spoke about the early days of hip-hop, but this is when the music itself was becoming more socially acceptable and mainstream. So, you know, Teddy's music was all over the radio. You would hear his music during day parts. You'd hear his music um, during the morning drives. It wasn't like Teddy's music was Grandmaster Flash and um, where, where you would only hear it overnight. So Teddy's music and that whole New Jack Swing sound, it was so close to, you know, who we were, this new generation, this hip-hop generation, because it had, you know, the kick drums and the 808s and the beats and that swing. It was very close to what we were listening to in terms of hip-hop and what had our hearts. So it was a natural progression for us to, to really adopt and embrace that sound that he came with because it was just the more smoothed out version of hip-hop. He just felt like it was not a distant cousin, but a close cousin. So it wasn't exactly hip-hop. It was a smoothed out version of it. So you could still be hip-hop. And you could still love the culture, but this was your R&B variant of it. Right, definitely that, because I can remember growing up being super duper young when Teddy was hitting, but just realizing like, hey, the beats are hitting. It has the same melodic approach as R&B of Motown. And was that their generational divide in the household where... When Heavy D or a lot of newer rap acts would get played, a lot of the older generation would turn up their nose and say, what is this? I don't understand it. Correct. And right. like I said, my mom is not that much older than me. She didn't get it. It's never like she got it. You know, we could literally have the same conversation with her. And there's a complete cultural disconnect between our generation and hers. And she is not that much older than me. Right. So, with New Jack Swing being in its full force, speaking of which, got to get props to full force because I think they kind of laid the groundwork for what was to come with New Jack Swing, what they were doing with themselves, UTFO, Lisa Lisa, Cheryl, Pepsi, Riley, and a young man was interning, then later became A&R for Uptown Records, which was started and founded by the late Andre Harrell, may he rest in peace, Sean Diddy Combs, and he told the story of how he was a student at Howard, and to show how bad he wanted to get down, he was willing to take the Amtrak from D.C. to New York to intern, and then Andre had him run an errand for him, say, hey, I need you to run this tape to the studio, and Diddy ran 20 blocks, 10 up, 10 back, and Andre Harrell was impressed. He was like, man, this kid got it. 
So what led to you becoming an intern for Bad Boy once Diddy started it? By the time that I interned for Bad Boy, I had taken four other unpaid internships. I was gung-ho on trying my best to get into the music industry. At that time, I was literally doing anything and everything I could to get into the music industry. And I wasn't paid for it. I was working and paying my own way to get there, paying for my lunch myself, and I'm doing these internships for a year at a time. And I just couldn't get in. And when Diddy started Bad Boy Records, it was fate. And this is where my faith kicks in because I truly believe that had I gotten a job at any of those other internships that I so desperately wanted to get a job at, my career would have been very, very short and I would not have been able to make the inroads and the name that I did for myself and have all of the history that I did in the music industry. So when Bad Boy came around, you know, I was ready to check out, just to be totally honest with you. I had taken four unturned internships. I had managed so many artists that never got deals. I was doing anything and everything humanly possible that I knew how to do to get into the music industry, and it just wasn't happening for me. And finally, right when I was about to tap out, there was a man named Puffy at the time. He wasn't getting he was puffy in the industry. Me and his paths had crossed on many of occasions because he was a hotshot young executive. And at that time, like I told you, I was managing artists. I was also promoting parties in New York City, doing anything I can to really make myself a standout and get noticed and break into this industry that I love so much. So when he started Bad Boy, I went down there and I was ready to just cash it in, like, you know what, Sean, this is not meant to be, go get a regular job, you're getting older, you have taken internship after internship, you promoted parties, you managed artists, it, it, it ain't for you. And when I went down there, something happened, and I just believe it's divine, it's almost like you know, in the movies where you see that ray of light come out of the sky, and it's like, ah! like, like God just is like, you've arrived. When I went to that office, Bad Boy Records was just in its infancy. It was a very small office on 19th Street in Manhattan. There were a bunch of people who were young. They were black and brown. They were hungry as I don't know what. They were aggressive. They were, this was the music industry. You walk in that office and music was blast. Like, just, I mean, you got to think, Diddy started that label when he was about 21, 22 years old. So he was so immersed in the culture. When you walked into that office, you felt it. It felt like I worked at a party. So when I walked in, the music is blasting. It's a bunch of young people who are so freaking aggressive and they just wanted to win and they wanted to make the best music because Bad Boy wasn't run by older people. It was run by young people. It was so reflective of the music that we were putting out. And I knew that this was going to be my home. As soon as I walked in, like I said, it was almost like that real light. I knew this was going to be it. This was, you know, all of the toiling and all of me scratching and scraping and trying to get in the industry was all for this moment. So I took this internship for no other reason than this was the first environment I walked into that felt like me, that was run by people who look like me and act like me. And I knew that this was going to be the game changer. 
shit. And just to be totally transparent, at the time, I had just started a full-time job. And I went down to Bad Boy the first day just to check it out. Like, let me go just peek my head in. This is a new label. I don't even know if they're going to be around. And when I got down there and I saw how it operated, I called my job the same day, or maybe it was the next day, and told them I quit. And I went back in the bad boy and worked for free. So I left a full-time job, making a full-time salary, to go to bad boy and work for free again. But it did change my life. Right, and that's what you call stepping out of faith. Like you said, you had previous unpaid internships, and then you were provided that ram in the bush and bad boy, and then that set up the stage for... Your career now coming into a upstart label. What were some of the tasks that they had you doing once you first got in beyond just like your regular office work and then going out with the street team? For those of you that are too young to remember what the street team is, it's normally where you get your interns or those who are in entry level positions, pass out this CD or cassette sampler, take these flyers up to any light pole, pass them out on all the streets drive that rap band around, bumping the new music, do whatever you have to do to get that word out. Well, that is exactly what I did. When I got to Bad Boy, I was, you know, I just came off a full-time job, and I wanted a real position. Give me some, like, I'm not just some young kid off the street. I can handle real work. But in the music industry, it is such a, a coveted industry. It's so desirable. So many people want to get in. And it's a very small industry. So people, you see these artists all around the world, and you think the music industry is huge. No, the music industry is very, very small. Everybody knows each other. It's a very small circle. So when you come in, you're going to start off on the bottom. Or I have... 5,000 other people who are dying to get into the same spot. So either take it or leave it. So I had to start off on a street team. It wasn't a job I wanted to do, but it was what was available and what they allowed me to do. So I came to this company, and now I am on in the lowest position you could possibly be at a record label, which is a street team. And I embraced it. I totally embraced it. It was like, yo, you know what? If this is how I have to get in to a business that I so-called love, then I'm going to do whatever I can do. I'm going to do whatever it takes, and I'm going to prove myself. While I was on the street team, and most of the time on the street teams, you're out at night, and you're hitting the clubs up, you're hitting the streets. Like you said, back in those days, you're putting up poster boards around the city poles, you're handing out flyers. So you're really part of the nightlife. But during the day, unlike most people who are on the street teams, I told them, look, I want to come and I want to work the office. I want to learn what goes on in the office and make my presence felt. So I would work a full day in the office, and then I would head out with the street team maybe about 5, 6 o'clock in the afternoon, and we'd stay out to 4 in the morning or something. And I'd be back to work at 10 a.m. Wow. And that shows gumption because normally some people would just wait to be told what to do, but you were like, look, I want to do this, I want to do this. And they probably looked at that and said, hey, this guy, he's really going to be something because he's just not going to be waiting around and having us tell him what to do. He's saying, I want to do something. Put me in. And like you said, you've got to earn your keep first. It's like back in the day when you used to go on the basketball court. You couldn't just play with the big dogs right away. You had to go on that other court and prove yourself. And once you prove yourself, then maybe you could come onto the court and roll with the big boys. Now, do you think in today's state with social media and how everything is so instant that 
A lot of young people that's looking to get into any profession are willing to humble themselves and serve as opposed to used to having everything come to them right away with the instant gratification with social media. Well, it depends on the human being. I hate to make these broad stroke comments about young people because you do have some young people who are willing to roll up their sleeves and put in the work. But they can't help that they grew up during a technology era. They can't help that they grew up during a time when everything is in the palm of your hand and it's on demand. Like, you want to answer to something like for me and you. When we needed answers to something, whether it was for school, book reports, Whatever it might be, we had to go, and if your mother didn't have the newest edition of the encyclopedia in your house, you had to go to the library, and you had to research and do your due diligence and get your report done. These kids today, you know, they have laptops. They have cell phones. They just hit Google and ask, hey, Siri, what is this? And Siri's going to tell them. Although, like I said, I hate to just cover an entire generation with a broad stroke of a brush, I like to think of it as individuals. Many of them probably would not want to humble themselves and start at the bottom because everything for them is, you know, since birth has been, I get it when I want it. It's available to me. But I do believe you still have a lot of folks, a lot of the younger generation who they came up under people like myself. I only know one way. It's hard work. So whether it is my own child or people around me, you're going to be influenced by who you're around. My thing is always don't ever take the easy way out. Don't ever look for the easy solution just to say you can get something done. Roll your sleeves up and be prepared to do the work because the competition, I don't care, we're talking about music industry, but, you know, I don't care if it's Silicon Valley, tech, I don't care what it is, the competition, and now we're living in a world of COVID, so many people are out of work. Only way you're going to stand out is to put in the work. It is not good enough to think that, okay, I can just jump the line or I am entitled to a position just because. No, it doesn't work like that. you got to put in the work. So I don't know. That's an open-ended question. Hopefully I answered it the best as possible. I just don't want to cover all of this generation and, right. and say, no, they don't like the work. Right. I understand that because that's on a case-by-case basis. You go by what you know and what you've been around. Now, do you know if for the launch of Biggie and Craig Mack, when he had the idea for the Big Mac attack, that Diddy had to get clearance from McDonald's to use that? He never got clearance. He just went Rambo. It was a great idea, and it was like, yo, let's go for it. And for anybody who doesn't know Diddy, Diddy operates, and I remember when we were kids, he's always had the same mentality. He would tell us, and I promise y'all this, Diddy was in his early 20s. We'd be sitting in staff meetings, and one thing I love about him is because he always led by example. You know, he never asked you to do anything that he either hadn't done or wasn't willing to do. So let's start there. But Aside from that, he always operated under the premise of ask for forgiveness. He'd rather ask for forgiveness instead of permission. So if it was a great idea, and this is his words, yo, let's go do it, and we apologize in the morning. And that's just the way Bad Boy was, and that's what I loved about it so much. Right. He definitely has that go-get-it-at-all-cost mentality because when I interviewed Ivory Tab who was on season one for I Want to Work for Diddy, she was saying the same thing that when you are at Bad Boy and are under him, you're going to have to go get it. you got to be as hungry as he is. you got to be willing to roll your sleeves, put in the work, 
get it in and be ready to grind. Yep. And that is what I love. And now, what was it like for you? You've been there for a while, and all of a sudden you get that big promotion to VP. What was that like for you? And then what artists did you have a hand in breaking and marketing to the masses to launch into big success? Well, for me, getting that promotion, you'd have to understand my personality. So when I answer this, kind of take it with a grain of salt. But I just told you, I took five internships before I got in the game. So on one hand, I was appreciative and I was humbled just to be in. It didn't matter about the title. I worked my butt off for years to get in. And finally, I was in. So every day for me was humbling and I had a respect, a true respect uh, uh, and an appreciation for the fact that I am doing something that so many others around the world would love to do. But this was, I didn't work five internships to just say, look, I can get into every club for free or people know my name. I worked those five internships because I wanted to blow. I wanted to be the man. I wanted to make a lot of money. I wanted to leave my imprint in this game and make a name for myself so that people who one day want to get in the game, they can model their career and their success after me. So becoming, going from intern to coordinator, from coordinator to director, from director to VP, from VP to senior VP, that was expected. That was all part of the plan as far as I was concerned. It was like this was always what it was going to be. When I got in, they unleashed a wild animal out the cage. I looked at this as, I don't care, I'm going to do whatever it takes. I am not in this game to play games. I'm in this game to make my mark. So the titles never meant anything to me because in my own head, even when I was interning, I saw myself as a true player in the game. I saw myself as being part of the upper echelon of the music industry. It just was a matter of when. So I don't know that those titles meant anything at all to me. Sometimes I even forget it um, until people like yourself remind me. But I had my hand in breaking any artist you can think of on Bad Boy from the early Maces and Carl Thomas and Shine and Black Rob. Just any artist, you know, the making the band era, Danity Kane and the band. Anybody who you think of, I was there. And I wasn't just there. I was an integral part of the success of these artists. I sat at the table. I wasn't just a cog in a wheel. But outside of that, you know, my company, Power Moves Inc., Marketing and Promotion, we have done promotion and helped to break so many artists from the ground up. All of the Young Money, Cash Money, Nicki Minaj, Drake, all of them, my company worked as independent contractors. Malisha Keys, before the world ever knew her name, we used to do all of the street marketing and promotion for J Records at the time. So there are countless artists in the industry that are even outside of Bad Boy Records that myself directly or my company had a hand in helping to break and to become household names. Right. And I was listening to Quest Love. He was doing, I believe, a Bad Boy set, and he was talking about how before Diddy started Bad Boy, Biggie, of course, as some of us all know, was originally signed to Uptown, and once 
Then he started Bad Boy, took Biggie with him. Now, Questlove has stated that Biggie had an uptown version of the Ready to Die album, but once he went over to Bad Boy, they decided to do a totally new version of Ready to Die. And then also with 112's debut, Tim and Bob originally had some songs for 112's debut, they wanted to put them on Boys to Men, but Gerald Busby, who was over at Motown, said that, hey, I want to keep established producers on the sophomore effort because of Boys to Men's status, and a lot of those songs ended up going to 112 for their debut. Now, thinking back to that time period of the mid to late 90s, I mean, Bad Boy, Rockefeller, Cash Money, No Limit, all those labels were white hot. So what was it that made all of those labels so special at a time when there was still kind of like that regional separation, what was going on on the East Coast, in the West, and then with the rise of the South? Well, you got to remember, so much of the success in any industry, let's go to the tech industry, and you can look at people like Steve Jobs and Bill Gates. You know, part of their success was just by virtue of when they were born. Like, when they were born, and by the time they became in their early 20s, the technology was readily available to them to create software and to create a PC or a Mac. At that time, it was a Macintosh. Had they been born maybe five years later or five years earlier, they would have missed this window to become the people that they became. And it's the same thing in hip-hop. So many of the labels that you just mentioned, all of these guys are born either the same year or one or two years off from one another. And they were all growing up just like me, loving this art form. And the industry was burgeoning. It was just opening up. And it was the golden years of hip-hop because there was so much, so many trails that hadn't been blazed yet. So if it, if it started in the East Coast, you know, by the time people like Master P and Cash Money got it down south, they were still early. It was ready for them. It wasn't oversaturated for them. And more important, hip-hop is such a regional music. See, everybody wants to represent their backyard. They want to represent their hood. And for the Bad Boys and the Rockefellers, those are two very different sounds. Bad Boy blew because Puff brought something so new to hip-hop, whereas hip-hop at the time was grimy. Everybody wore their pants sagging down to their knees. People were drinking ice cube in them, which was making commercial with... with St. Ives. St. Ives, there you go. Beer commercial. Everybody was drinking 40s. You would see the woo and all them drinking 40s. It was grimy. Puff came in. Bad Boy had a sound. He was sampling music that our parents loved. He smoothed it out. But it wasn't just the music, was it? He created a culture around the music. Nah, we gonna pop bottles. We gonna put on suits. We gonna dress up and we hitting VIP. We're not no longer doing music videos in front of the projects with a hundred of our closest friends, our boys, wilding out in the video. They just happy to be on camera. Puff was like, no, we taking this to mansions. We going to places like San Tropez. We building up tubs of champagne. He changed the culture of music. So yes, sonically, he was changing the game. But culturally, he changed it as well. And I would like to think all of those labels that you mentioned, number one, 
they were in the right place at the right time. But also, they were bringing their culture. I remember at the beginnings of No Limit and the beginnings of Cash Money and all these different Southern labels, you know, whether it was it was Luke Skywalker doing what he was doing down in Miami, Florida, or what's the homeboy's name in Houston? Jay Prince Rapalot. Yeah, there you go. I was learning about their culture through their music. I didn't live down south. So just that they were learning about our culture, we were learning about theirs. We jumped over people like N.W.A. and Ruthless Records. And part of the what made hip-hop special and what made these guys blow is they introduced kids from around the world to what it was like to be young, black, and live in cities that we probably would never visit. The first time I've even heard of Compton was, was because, or Long Beach, was because of what Dre and Snoop and all of those and Easy was doing out on the West Coast. I had no idea. I wasn't thinking about New Orleans, but I got introduced to their culture and the wars and things like that through the music and watching the videos and seeing what they were doing. And I got introduced to Houston, you know, through Jay Prince and rap a lot. You know, I got introduced to Miami and their sound and that bass music and how that was so different from anything anybody else was doing. You know, in the beach. I got introduced to that through hip-hop. So I just believe that these guys were successful because they were in the right place at the right time. Um, and, and, and also they just introduced and they stuck very true to who they were. They introduced audiences like myself to their city, their culture, their region, their blocks. And they were unfiltered, and it was done raw, and they were just showing you this is how we live. And they were combining it with a sound that we didn't hear. They weren't trying to be New York. They were unapologetic about being where they were from. You know, I loved it. Yeah, and I loved it too. And I'd be remiss if I didn't mention Rough Riders and Slip and Slide as well. Now, when I was looking at the documentary for The Art of Organized Noise about Organized Noise, they had Diddy in it. And I didn't know this until the documentary that he directed the video for Players Ball for Outcast. And he was the one yes, that told Andre 3000, hey, be yourselves. Don't try to be like us in New York. You guys are from Atlanta. Rep Atlanta. And that really spawned what was to come with Atlanta. But you had Ellie and Babyface set up the face that laid the groundwork for Atlanta. And then also what JD was doing with Social Death. Yep. And it's definitely true what Andre 3000 said. The South got something to say. And then also... Definitely got to give big, big shout-outs to Port Office Finest, UGK, Rest in Peace, Tempsey, and also Memphis. Memphis doesn't get enough credit for what they did hip-hop-wise. DJ Spanish Fly, also 8-Ball, MJG, and 3-6. You're right. Coming out of Memphis, and then if you go to D.C., you've got your go-go sound with your Travel Funk, your EU, Rare Essence, and the Godfather of Go-Go. Chuck Brown, and like you said, that's what made hip-hop so special at that time where you could be able to listen to a certain record and see, hey, this is what's going on in our neck of the woods. And also, with hip-hop being the world's most loved and popular genre of music, and with it being so commercialized, it made what Hammer was doing in the early 90s a precursor to how big rap is now, even though he was looked at kind of sideways at the time because it was still that fine line of, okay, do I still want to be underground and be critically acclaimed, or do I want to have the commercial sales and the endorsement 
to back it up. And that's what Hammer did. Correct. And I definitely think that, you know, all of the big success that your Drakes and all your rappers that you have now owes most of that to Hammer. And then we also can't forget about the Bay Area, too. Hammer came out of the Bay. We had E-40 out of the Bay, Too Short out of the Bay, G-Eazy out of the Bay, just getting it in, popping the trunk selling it themselves, moving it. And then I just recently did an interview with KG. He was lead singer of UK R&B pop group m And they actually were one of the first artists that Diddy did a remix for. And the record that he did was I Got a Little Something For You. And it was on the Bad Boy soundtrack. So but that was pretty cool to hear his experience talking about how a lot of international acts take their musical cues from us over here and just add their own cultural spin to it. Correct. And also, I do want to go into what is it that you think it's about hip-hop from a marketing standpoint that has these big corporations saying, we want to tap into this demographic because we know this is a market that's not being served, kind of like what Sprite did with those early hip-hop commercials back in the 80s and 90s. Well, number one, like I said earlier, hip-hop in its Partly the reason why my company became so successful, Power Moves Marketing and Promotion, Power Moves Inc. Marketing and Promotion. Hip-hop, we, as much as it is a mainstream music, it is a music that is very, very, very true to its roots. As long as you don't sell out in hip-hop, people will find you. And unlike many of these big corporations, they have huge budgets. And they have people who are educated and they come from a world of learning, marketing from the perspective of these are the do's and the don'ts and this is what general marketing is and this is how you reach a target demographic. But what they miss is the hands-on and the grassroots approach that embodies everything in hip-hop. Hip-hop always was and always will be a music that is close to the streets. It always breaks from the ground up. It doesn't, and unlike brands and corporations, they market from the top down. So these brands and corporations, they tapped into companies like mine because we had the ability to do something that they never could. We can get into the communities in a very authentic, a very credible, a very non-intrusive way that they never could. And it's primarily because we are the consumer. I know how to market to black and brown people because I'm black. I know where I hang out. I know what I like. I understand the slang. I understand how messages have to be crafted in order to resonate with people who come from these neighborhoods. And with big corporations, yeah, you can put up a billboard in Times Square. You can put money into social media. But if you don't speak the language, if you don't know how to infiltrate where this consumer who is a multi-billion dollar consumer lives, works, plays, if you don't know how to infiltrate their world effectively, you're wasting your money. And that is why companies like my own was created and have thrived for many years because we understand the consumer, number one, because we are the consumer. But number two, we understand that this consumer, we create culture. We create trends. We don't want to feel like we're being marketed to. We don't want to feel like somebody's telling us what we should buy. It has to be packaged 
It either has to be marketed to us in a way that it doesn't feel like marketing. And then we'll adopt it, and then we'll evangelize and go out and tell our friends, you need to get on this brand because of X, Y, and Z. But, you know, I just think that brands don't understand how to get into our communities effectively, and they constantly do it wrong, and it comes across as contrived and it comes across as oh it's just some people with a bunch of money who you know are trying to market to us and time and time again our community is like nope you know we want nothing to do with you right because they're able to see through it because i remember it was years ago where mcdonald's was trying to do this campaign where they were trying to get rappers to name drop big mac and they were going to get paid x amount of dollars for the plug and people saw through that really quick where they were like, nah, you're just trying to use us to get into our demo and it's not very authentic. Because I remember, I think it was maybe 05, I want to say, Diddy went on 106 in Park and he was talking about Twitter before anybody knew what Twitter was. And everybody's thinking like, why do I want to go to a website and type what I'm doing? And now you see almost everybody and their grandmother is on Twitter or various forms of social media. And do you think that the music industry as a whole has done a very good job at adapting to streaming and the use of technology as opposed to as they were during the time when Napster was coming out and they were very resistant? I do. I think that, you know, if you look at so many of the young kids, this is the way that they're breaking their records. When I was coming up, we hit the streets hard. Now the kids are breaking their records on social media. They're very creative in the ways that they are breaking their records. So, yeah, I think that hip-hop is adapting well. You know, I think the music industry overall, you know, I was a big part of the music industry at the time um, when companies like Napster came in and really forced the industry to take a long, hard look at its business model. And the music industry chose to try to put Napster out of business, what they didn't realize was the genie was out of the bottle. Times were changing. People were going to consume music differently. So, yeah, you could put Napster out of business, but there were going to be 15 other Napsters that popped up. People were consuming this content, that music, differently than they had done. You know, I was young. I remember driving around and people had 8-track tape decks in their cars with these big old 8-tracks. That technology changed to regular cassettes. That technology changed to CD. That technology changed to streaming. So it always changes with the advancement of technology. But I do think hip-hop is doing a really good job of keeping up. And I think the music industry as a whole learned from its mistake with Napster because they could have easily partnered with Napster instead of trying to put it out of business and, and been on the other side of a new business model in terms of making money. And instead, they let people like Steve Jobs come in and, you know, he wasn't even in the music industry. And now he's probably, arguably, his company anyway, Apple is arguably one of the biggest players in music. And this is not even his background. But so I think that the music industry has learned from those mistakes of the past. Right. You definitely fear what you don't know because everybody back then was used to having albums going gold or platinum every week and people running the either Virgin Megastore, HMV, FYE, Camelot and paying $15 for a cassette or 20 bucks for a CD. But when Napster came, that, like you said, completely disrupted the traditional business model of the music industry, whereas I can go to this website, get these songs for free, or I can go to iTunes, purchase a single for 99 cents, 
have it on my iPod and it was just the way that business wasn't being done with at the time and I tell people all the time one of my favorite remix albums of all time is the What's the 411 remix from Mary J. I still bang that to this day and also another one of my favorite groups of all time Jodeci from my home state of North Carolina. It was just amazing how Diddy was able to take four southern boys. They were wearing suits and the father MC treat them like they treat them how they want to be treated video and made them into superstars but they had the image of hey these are dudes from around the way but really can blow and also I want to know this since you did marketing and promotion for bad boy whatever happened to the rapper Kane because we thought he was next on deck after he did his cameo in the this is me remake for dream I don't know you know the music industry is a funny thing there are millions of artists as you know Everybody's not going to blow. Everybody's not going to make it to the finish line. So everybody has a very different story. Kane, I remember him. He was a great kid. I'd be lying to you if I told you why his career never took off. But you could talk, or I could talk about a million artists on a million different labels that had singles and just never made it. Right. You know, I was talking to Rodney Jerkins not too long ago, and he was, talking to me about his artist, Gina Thompson, and she had that, you know, huge record back in the day. And I was just like, damn, I told you, I was like, I got to go and put that record on one of my playlists because I used to love that record when I was coming up. But whatever happened to Gina Thompson, whatever, you know, it's so many of these artists that you just never know whatever happened to them. So I don't know. Right. It's definitely a crapshoot. And I'm one of the few people I really loved Usher's debut album. I really loved that album. Because I know that he went up to spend time with Diddy, and it had that early bad boy sound with production from Diddy, I'll Be Sure, Devontae, and to me, I felt like it was a super, super, super dope album. It was a dope album. I mean, it, it was a dope album. It was a gold album. I didn't realize that many people didn't like it, but I know it went gold, so it didn't do too bad. Right. It didn't do too bad, and everybody knows he found his sweet spot once he hooked up with J.D. to put out My Way, the 8701 Confession. Those guys should have did the album together to begin with, truth be told. I love Diddy, but they were neighbors. They came up together. They had a different, they knew each other outside of music. And sometimes when you have a different relationship with somebody and you're just vibing offline, when you get in the studio, you communicate without even saying a word. Yeah, like Usher saw massive success when he hooked up with JD, but, and I truly believe maybe that's where he should have started, but his first album and Puff introducing him to the game, it didn't do bad for him at all. I mean, it might even, that might be underplaying. It might even be a platinum album. Right. The many ways can you get with it. Like I said, that whole album I listened to from front to back, and I love it. And then another album of mine off of Bad Boy, that was my favorite, Carl Thomas Emotional. That album from top to bottom, beautiful, beautiful album. And I'll tell you a little backstory on this. I was a singer at one point in time in my former life, and I Wish was actually a song that I did when I performed Amateur Night at Apollo. Yeah, so that was a little interesting story there in regards to Carl Thomas. Now, before we wrap, so do you think now with the way that streaming and everything has changed the industry, that the industry has caught up as far as rewriting the contracts to make it more favorable? to the artist and then as far as the marketing techniques how it's more of a straight direct to consumer model that artist is pretty much coming into the game knowing more than what they knew back 
before technology just shifted everything? I don't know how much they're knowing coming into the game because they're still young. I mean, the average artist gets signed late teens, early 20s. And the more you are exposed to something, the more you know about it. So I don't know how much they know. But in terms of the contracts and the artists getting paid more and all that, the game has shifted. The contracts are way more advantageous for artists than they've ever been because artists can say, you know what, I don't need your money. I'm making money because, okay, for instance, unlike when we were coming up, it was very difficult to make money as an independent because the cost of vinyl, the cost of CDs, they just were so much. You had to go through these press implants and to try to get your money back from the distributors. It was a nightmare. But now, if an artist puts their music up on these streaming platforms, the money's coming directly to them. So if they're making money already, labels have to shift and now do deals that are more reflective of being partners as opposed to you work for me. Because technically, the artist can bypass the middleman and say, you know what, I don't need a label. I'll do this on my own. And although I might not be huge as quickly, I'm still able to put my music out and make money while I'm doing it, unlike so many artists of past generations. So with the success of technology, or I'm not even going to say the success, with the advancement of technology, it really has worked in favor of the artist. You know, I don't think it's a better time to be an artist. This is going back to the glory days of music. But here's the caveat. Because the barrier of entry is so low, like when I was coming up, if you wanted to be a DJ, you had to invest thousands and thousands and thousands of dollars into vinyl. And you had to invest so much of your time going record store to record store and trying to get all of these, these limited printed versions of vinyl. That took time. It took money. Same thing is if, like myself, I started a record label when I was a teenager. You know, I got a little bit of money, a loan from my dad, and getting records pressed cost me thousands and thousands of dollars. You don't have that anymore. So because people can do it so easy, they can go, you know, and also when I was coming up, going into the studio, that was thousands of dollars. You know, you literally had to go in, do what you had to do, and they would give you two hours, three hours. And God forbid if you didn't nail it in those two, three hours, that was it. But now the technology has allowed people to make songs in their bathroom for a fraction of the cost of what we used to have to pay for it just 20 years ago, 30 years ago. And I'm just saying that to say now anybody can do it. So, yes, they're making more money today. And it's a great time to be in the music industry if you're an artist. But because the barrier of entry is so low, anybody can do it. So now, whereas before, you were in, for lack of a better way to put it, a pond or you were in a river. Now you're in the Pacific Ocean and you got to find a way to stand out, you know, and be a whale in the Pacific Ocean, which is not easy to do because anybody and everybody is now uploading at any given minute. Right. You definitely have to do more and it's not like how you could take a long gap break because there's so much out there and so many other things to keep people's attention. You got to constantly be in their face. Now, before we close this interview, do you have any shout-outs you want to give and also plug your social media? Thank you for that. Guys, number one, I hope I provided some information to you guys. Any interview I do, I really try to not make it about me per se. 
But in telling my story, I love to educate and provide real information. I would love for anybody who's watching this video and enjoyed it, catch me across all of my social platforms. It's at Power, P-O-W-E-R, Moves. M is in man, O-V-E-S, Prez, which is my last name. P is in Paul, R is in Roger, E is in Elvis, Z is in Zebra. At Power Move Prez. And lastly, what we didn't discuss in this interview is I am a motivational speaker and I'm also a person who interviews high-level executives and extremely successful entrepreneurs, people I have met and have done business with over the years. So if you are a person who is interested in entrepreneurship and you want to start a business or if you're just a person who wants to advance in your career, Please head on over to my YouTube channel, same thing, Power Move Prez, and you will see interviews with some of the biggest people in entrepreneurship, music industry, just really high-level executives who are willing to share in-depth steps on how you can grow your business, how you can take yourself from where you are now and get to the next level. So thank you so much for allowing me to plug that, Joel. No problem. Ladies and gentlemen, there you have it. In this interview, along with others from Beyond the Album Cover, are available on most streaming platforms, Anchor, Breaker, Stitcher, Spotify, TuneIn Radio, or wherever you get your podcast and coming soon video content. Ladies and gentlemen, Mr. Sean Press of Power Moves Incorporated and former VP of Marketing Promotion for Bad Boy is just an all-around good, solid brother. Sean, thank you very much for coming on to the podcast. Sure, thank you.